steal your luck. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, if you uh, have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn open to that passage that Kevin just read. We'll spend some more time there uh, this morning, later in the day. Well, we want to thank you for the welcome we have received here and uh, the grace that you've already given and not knowing your names yet, even though we've met many of you. Uh, That'll be a process, but we are so glad to be here. And I I want to present a disclaimer out there. Some of you may have seen uh, on Facebook some pictures of me uh, at the back-to-school retreat, and uh, I just want to let you know pictures can be doctored, okay? Uh, what, what, I was actually, it's true, I was part of a pie-eating contest with one of our students, and I won, so I just want that to be clear, okay? Those, those students have some room to grow when it comes to life, and so I, I taught them some good things. I, I enjoyed being with them. I got to tell you, if, if, if the, it's any indication what your teens are to the rest of this church, uh, we're in good hands uh, for what's ahead, that they are not the future church. They are part of this church. Amen? And I'm excited to see the ways that they were able to, uh, to learn and grow and be in community together and have fun together and worship their God. It was just an amazing uh, time to be with them over the last two days. I got to take Maddox along with me, and so he had fun too. And, uh, and so it was, it was good to be there, but it's good to be back with you all this morning. Well, last week I talked about uh, becoming a church Uh, that doesn't make it hard for those who are turning to God, that doesn't put hurdles in front of people who are trying to find Jesus. I want to continue on that theme this morning uh, from this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul talks about. We'll talk about that in in just a moment, but I'm guessing that this is one of those things, what Kevin read just a moment ago, that in that letter that came to the church at Corinth, I'm just guessing if he's a preacher like I'm a preacher and, and I've experienced some things like this, that some people misunderstood and misconstrued what Paul was trying to say in those verses. I, I've, I, it's amazing sometimes when I uh, talk to people after a sermon what they heard that I don't think I ever said, right? I mean, communication is a difficult thing sometimes because I'm trying to communicate one thing and you're hearing through your lens and, and, and that's where the grace of God is so good sometimes for us preachers, right? Right? <laughs> Uh, but you experience this in your relationships, I, I'm guessing, right? Because there are people that you get along with well, and you give them the benefit of the doubt when you hear things from them. It may sound a little odd, right? You've got that relationship, and I think that's one of the greatest blessings of grace we can give to people in our relationships, is to show them the grace of uh, listening with grace to one another, of, of giving them the benefit of the doubt. But there are people and and don't point fingers, this is not one of those times to do that, okay? But there are people in your life that you may struggle with. 
And you often won't give them the benefit of the doubt. You hear what you want to hear, and sometimes it's the negative things that you pick up more than the positives. And we're all this way. We're all drawn this way when it comes to communication. And I'm guessing that there were opponents of Paul where he found himself in ministry. And there were some in Corinth, I'm sure, that heard his words, and they heard something different than what Paul was trying to communicate. But I think this is a vital text as we look forward to what it means to be the people of God that are reaching into our community to make disciples of all nations. And I'm excited to share this message with you this morning. But I want to spend some time in prayer this morning for what I'm about to share, but also uh, for a couple of things. One of them is our teens as they come back from the back to school retreat, that God would give them travel mercies, and that what he's done during that time would continue into the following week. The theme of the week was hashtag Monday. And the point was, hey, Sunday's important, but if that doesn't get carried out in our lives on Monday, then it's not of significance, really. That what it means to be the wise man at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is to hear Jesus' words and to put them into practice. And so that's my prayer for those teens is they will come back and it won't just be a mountaintop experiences at their retreat, but they'll come back to live that out. Uh, And same prayer this morning for us as well, that Sunday translates into Monday. But there's some big world events we need to pray about as well. And one of those is the persecution of Christians that's going on around our world today, but specifically in the country of Iraq. Uh, as we've seen Christians having to, to flood the, flee the country. And we need to be in prayer about that as a church because we have the freedom to, to worship here. We ought to be grateful for that freedom, but there are many around the world that don't have that and are meeting and proclaiming Jesus Lord at risk to their lives today. We need to stand in the gap to pray for them. And at the same time, it's not just people who are Christians that we pray for. It's all those who find themselves in conflict. One of those places is in our own country. We've seen the scenes on the television probably this week in Ferguson, Missouri. We are peacemakers as people of the kingdom of God. And I don't know what that looks like in our city, but I know I'm seeing those scenes. And and we need to be a part of racial reconciliation as part of this church as we see our community change with immigrants from other countries and and people of all different backgrounds. And, And as we see these clashes in different parts of our country, it's important that we pray for those people that peace would win out in the end and that through this somehow relationships can be built that are not there. So right now I want to say a prayer for those things and I'd beg you to pray with me right now about that. God, we we ask for several things this morning. That as we seek to be a church that does all things to reach all people, that we might win some. We know that means we've got to understand different cultures in different ways than we have in the past. And so, God, we pray for the disruption and the discord and the violence that's going on in our country, God, and in Ferguson. And just pray, God, that somehow through this, uh, the relationships would be built, God, and that peace can be maintained in, in ways it hasn't in this country sometimes in the past. So, God, we pray uh, for, for peace there, God, that somehow uh, your kingdom would come and your will would be done. And that means uh, that that conflict would come to a cease. We pray for the same thing, God, when it comes to Christians around the world today, especially in the country of Iraq. We just pray for the Christians who are fleeing that country, for all those who are caught in harm's way because of the violence of this radical group, God. And we just pray that somehow a ceasefire would begin, God, between Israel and Palestine. All these things, we we hear about them, God, and we know that prayer is one of the ways that we can go on behalf. And it may be a small way, but we know you're a big God. And so we pray, God, for these people across the world that are fearful for their lives or if they'll wake up tomorrow. God, we pray the same thing for our teens, that you will not uh, let this fire that's been built in them over these last couple days go out, God, but we'll encourage them. And I pray, as I told them this week, that they would set an example for the believers in this church, that we would not look down on them because they're young, God, but they would set an example in speech and in purity and in conduct and in love and in faith, God, and that by that we would see it and be encouraged to live out faith in our own lives. So God, let them lead us as a church. 
God, we love you and we thank you so much for this call of Paul and help us to hear these words as you meant them and as Paul meant them, uh, that we might become followers of Jesus that make disciples of all nations and become all things to all people. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and the church said, amen. One of the key themes in scripture that we find is that God is a liberator, that freedom is one of the most important themes that Scripture talks to us about. In fact, it comes really strongly through the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, because the people of God have found themselves in bondage. They're in slavery in a land called Egypt, and and Pharaoh is their taskmaster. And God, our God, declares himself and makes himself known to Israel by being their liberator, by freeing them from this bondage. And so throughout Scripture, we see freedom as a key theme, not just physical freedom, but it's spiritual freedom as well that God wants to break the bonds of in our lives. So this is a key theme, and and, and it's found throughout Scripture, really, this idea of liberation, that God wants to put an end to injustice and tyranny and slavery of all kinds. And as I said earlier, as we led to the prayer, we ought to be grateful for the freedoms we do have, right, to worship and to come here without fear. But that means there's also many across the world that still need freedom from that. We want to pray to God that that would happen. But I want to say this morning that God is still a God who frees his people. Amen? Some of us have experienced slavery, maybe not in the ways that it's happened in years past in this country, but we've experienced a freedom, a bondage spiritually that God has broken those chains from. We may still be in the process of feeling that freedom, but we pray that God would continue to do that, that we would live in a day where freedom continues to be a reality for us. But I want to say this morning that when we are freed, God doesn't just free people from things, God frees people for things. Okay, so we get freed from things, but we get to share that message with people so that they can experience the same freedom that we have experienced. God frees people so they can free people. Are you with me this morning so far? Amen. Well, if you agree with that, then you'll understand why the Corinthians have a little bit of a hard time with what Paul has to say. And as I was reading this passage, we love to get to the all things part of that, that he becomes like a Jew to win the Jews, but we don't sometimes read what, how that passage begins. And so I want to start by reading in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, we'll come back to that passage in a moment, but I want to key in on verse 19. See, Paul acknowledges he's free. He says, yeah, this is a God of liberation who liberates us and frees us from the bondages we find ourselves in. But Why would someone willingly choose to become a slave if freedom is what God is about in our lives? And Paul tells us why he does this. He says, I do this so that I can win as many as possible to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says this in several of his letters. He begins his letter to Rome. He begins his letter to Philippi and his letter to Titus. All three of those letters, he begins by saying, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. But that word servant can be translated and probably better translated actually as a slave of Christ Jesus. Now that's a little odd, right? Why would Paul introduce himself as a slave, as a, as a servant after freedom is what God is about? But if you made a decision to follow Jesus, I hope there were people that told you when you made that decision that part of you following Jesus means you're now a slave to him. That when we say Jesus is Lord, it's not just some cute saying we sing in our songs. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that he's not just our Savior who redeems us, he's also our Lord who commands our life. So the choice in the Christian life is not between freedom and slavery. The choice in the Christian life is, are you going to be a slave to sin 
Or are you going to be a slave to what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6? In fact, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open there to Romans 6. We'll start reading in verse 16 in just a moment. Paul's talking about baptism and this new life. And we shouldn't go on sinning so that grace may increase. No, that's not what we're about as the people of God. But he continues down and in verse 16, this is what he says. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, amen? You used to be slaves to sin. You have come to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And we get this wrong, I think, so often. We think, well, God has freed us from slavery. Now we are free to do what we want to do. And that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about slavery from one master. And I think we can all confess that at some points in our lives, sin has been our master. Amen? We've been mastered by it. There's been times we didn't think we'd ever break free from some things. Some of us have experienced addictions. And I think that's that slavery to sin that we've experienced. But at some point, the transformation of the Holy Spirit in our lives moves us to a place where we're now slaves to righteousness, to obedience, to the way of God. And then there's chapter 7 in Romans where Paul's kind of in the middle of that. And maybe some of us feel there today. Where, yeah, we're not quite as in bondage to sin as we once were, but we're not fully freed to righteousness. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, Paul says. And I think we have all experienced that feeling in our lives. But the choice is not freedom versus slavery. The choice is slavery to which master. All of us serve something or someone. The question is, who are we going to serve? Who are we going to give our lives to? Jesus is Lord is not, again, just a saying we say. It's to say, God, I'm putting myself under you. I'm making myself a slave to you. I'm going to live in the way you've called me to live. Well, let's keep reading in, back in 1 Corinthians to read what Paul says following that, those, that verse in 19. Verse 20. Paul says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. See, in these verses, Paul's kind of revealing his mission strategy to the people in Corinth. He's saying, this is what you should be about. When I encounter people who are Jews, I I become like Jews to win the Jews. It's interesting, that's his background, isn't it? And so that may seem like it's not a hard barrier to cross, but he's become new in Christ So that means he has to kind of go back to the way he was in some ways to reach those people. Or to those who are are under the law. Maybe he's talking about uh, God-fearing Gentiles, people who have already joined the movement. He's saying, I've become like those people. But when I I come to those who are not under the law, well, I, I interact with people in a different way to be able to reach those people. What Paul's not saying is, I change my message every time I go to these people. What he's saying is, I change uh, the form of the gospel. I change the way they can hear it. I speak in language they can understand. And I become like those people so they can hear what I'm trying to say. But I'm guessing there were probably those critics out there who had criticisms to bring at Paul, right? I'm just guessing there were some people that had to say, you know, I've heard about this Paul and I heard what he said to the Corinthians. Paul's a chameleon. 
Paul just blends in wherever he goes, and, and, and he'll just say whatever it takes to get people to follow Jesus. Or, or I, I can imagine another that says, you know, Paul's a preacher who just itches what itching ears need to get, them, to get the, them into the gospel, right? Paul will just, he just lays down, he waters down the gospel, and, and I think some of us have experienced those same criticisms when we've sought to live out the gospel. Uh, one of the most important uh, mentors in my life is a guy named Randy Harris. I think he's probably been here and spoken with you all before. He was a professor at ACU, still there with students. And, uh, and Randy tells the story about uh, a student that's about to graduate. He's a Bible major, and he's about to walk out into the world of ministry. And so at graduation, he steps up to this, this student who's about to launch into the world, and, and he says, so what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do now that you're graduating with your degree? And he says, well, I'm going to become a bartender. And and Randy goes, hey, yeah, really, what are you going to do, though? That's not what you're going to do. You have a degree from, and, and he says, no, I'm, I'm planning to be a bartender. And, and Randy said, uh, you're going to have to let me in on what this is all about, because I didn't prepare you in my classes for anything like this, okay? And, and he says, uh, well, I, what I figured is that when hurting and lonely and broken people are finding a place to go and talk and deal with people, they don't generally go to the church. They tend to go to a bar. And I'm just wondering, what would it be like if when they go to do that, the person behind the bar is a follower of Jesus who believes that Jesus is Lord. And Randy kind of, in his, the only way he can describe it, kind of, you know, says, well, I, I just kind of slunk away. And ever since then, I've been trying to create a school of bartending at ACU. And, <laughs> and he says, if you're wondering, it's not going all that well, okay? <laughs> See, sometimes when we bring the gospel, it comes in unorthodox ways and People start to ask questions. It's a risk to bring the gospel in ways. And I think Paul heard some of those things. And I'm wondering where Paul heard and understood how to bring the gospel to these people. And I'm just guessing that he probably learned that from Jesus. Because wasn't Jesus the same way? He went to people and he got called names. He was called a glutton and a drunkard, not because he was those things, but because he hung out with people who were like that. When it came to the Sabbath, he was willing to break regulations on the Sabbath because the Sabbath wasn't made for man. Uh, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And Jesus was hung out with all the wrong people. He was anointed by a sinful woman. And all the Pharisees could think about is, why are you hanging out with these people? And Jesus knew exactly why he was hanging out with these people. Because he was willing to risk his reputation for the sake of the gospel, that God might transform the world and make disciples of every single nation. And I think that's where Paul gets this message. You know, if you bring the message to different people groups, there's a good chance you're going to get misunderstood and labeled in certain ways. And I'm guessing there's some of you that have become a part of this congregation at Greenville Oaks. And maybe there are friends or family members that have kind of asked, you know, are you sure that's a faithful church? Maybe you have these awkward conversations around the dinner table at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and, and maybe parents are, are, are wondering why they don't do things quite like we used to do them in, in some ways. And that's okay because I think Paul and Jesus understood what it was to be misunderstood. Now, hear me clearly this morning. I am not saying we change the message of the gospel, like the function, the, the core of what it's all about. Paul never changed any of that. The question was, how do we get a hearing of the gospel when so many may not want to hear it if we speak in the ways we have at times in the past and we assume everyone hears it the same way we do? See, Paul is much more willing to become a slave to outsiders than he is to the established traditions in his day. And sometimes we get that backwards. And I think this has been the bent, though, of Christianity since the very beginning of things. Christianity has always been a very translatable uh, conversation with people. If you think about this from the very beginning, we serve a God who believes so much he wanted his, his message to be seen in the world. 
that he sent his son Jesus as a Jewish man, fully God, fully man, and he enters into the world. And there's a huge risk that comes with that. Because if Jesus is a certain way in the first century, then it might be that his followers in the future will think to do church means to do everything the way Jesus did it in his Jewish context. And certainly we want to pick up the characteristics of Jesus, but I think if Jesus showed up in 21st century America, it would look a little different, wouldn't it? If he showed up in Africa today, it would probably look a little different. If he were to show up in Regina, it would probably look a little different. So we don't confuse the, the forms of Christianity in the first century with the way of Christianity. It's how do we translate this, the, the never-changing message of the gospel in ways that people can hear it. And Acts 15, like we talked about last week, was a huge moment for that. I think Christianity has a leg up on a lot of religions in this way. For instance, when it comes to the differences between Christianity and Islam, Christianity is much more translatable than Islam ever will be. Take Bible translations, for example. The Bible, the New Testament, was written in the Greek language. And there came a decision at some point when they were beginning to take the gospel outside of where people spoke Greek and understood Greek, that they were having to decide, okay, the words of God have been given to us in Greek, They've been written down by men and humans. Uh, We believe that's the inspired word of God, but can we translate these words to other languages and it still be seen as inspired? And in the fourth century, there was this guy named Jerome who, who translates the Bible into Latin. And it was this huge moment for the church because what was decided then was it's okay to translate in faithful ways the gospel and still have it heard. And whatever you hear it in your language, it's still the inspired word of God. It's kind of like Acts 2, Pentecost, right? I mean, people are hearing in all kinds of different languages. And this message is not supposed to stay in one place. But when it comes to the holy text of Islam, the Quran, any translation of that text is not actually seen as the inspired word of Allah. So that's really hard to translate that when any translation, you're not quite sure, is this really what it means? And we still have those questions when it comes to translations of the Bible, right? But we believe that that Bible can be brought into the English like John Wycliffe did for us. And that whatever it's translated into, whatever translation you have in front of you today, that that's still the inspired word of God. Now think about that. That's huge for us, that we can have a Bible, that that's the inspired words of God that we can put out in our lives. That we can open up to 1 Corinthians 9, and it's not I'm, me reading Greek to you and telling you what it is, but that what you read with your own eyes is something that you can take as the gospel and trust as well. We believe the same thing about mission work, don't we? I hope so. That when Christianity has been at its best, it looks very different when it pops up in Africa and in South America and in Regina than it does in Allen, Texas. Paul did the same thing when he went through the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, he preaches the message of the gospel. It's the same message, but he preaches it very different depending on the people he's talking to. For instance, when he's talking to Bible believers, he quotes from Scripture and John the Baptist because they have that background to, to draw from. When he talks uh, to pagans, he argues from general revelation and from creation. In Romans 1, he talks about how there's no excuse for those who are not yet believers because creation itself testifies that God is who he says he is, that he's created all this. With Jews and God-fearers, he talks about uh, a little about God, and then he gets right to Christ because they already have an idea of who God is. But when it comes to people who don't know God, now he's got to start by saying, you know the gods the Romans have pointed out to you? Well, that's not who God is. Our God is a different God like he does in Athens. This is the unknown God. With Greeks and Romans, Paul goes to Christ's resurrection first and not to the cross because of the offense that would be. Again, the whole message is shared, but he contextualizes this message for the different audiences he's talking to. 
I think the way he would put it is he's all things to all people. You know, when Greenville Oaks started for the first Sunday, long before I even knew about this church, many of you may have, some of you may have been a part of that, and you had to make contextual decisions about how the gospel would get lived out in this church's future together. One of those decisions that may not have been a real conscious decision was the decision to hold your services in English. I mean, that's a contextual decision about the gospel that we just kind of take for granted, but it's a big decision. And let me just say, that there may be a day coming where we need to rethink that. Not that we won't have English services, but there may be a day when we need to have Spanish services that are going on, either concurrently or, or at another time, because our, our neighborhood is changing around us. Our world is changing. There's so many immigrant nations where people are flooding in here, and that provides so much opportunity for the gospel if we have eyes to see that we're called to be all things to all people. We have a Hispanic church that's meeting in our building here. I got to meet Renee and Carmen the other day and to hear their story about growing from just a a few disciples of Jesus to now over 100 people uh, that that are part of that body together. I, I get excited to hear about that. And let me tell you, I could have never done that in the Hispanic community around here because I don't know the Spanish language like Renee and Carmen do. And I don't know the, the, the cultural understandings and these assumptions that we just sometimes think, well, you can present the gospel anywhere and anyone can pick it up. But Renee and Carmen can do a better job of that than I'll ever be able to be. And the gospel has grown in this place as a result of that. And I wonder the ways that God is going to call us to step out and become all things to all people. What are the uh, connections you have in your area of work? You're to be all things to all people in your office. You're to be all things to all people in your school. You're to be all things to all people wherever you find yourself. And you're probably going to be able to do that with the relationships you have much better than your preacher will ever be able to do. And we live in an an era, an image-based culture. We live in a, a culture where people spend hours of their time on social media, right? And we can debate the positives and the negatives of that. And we'll get to that at some point probably. I've got a lot of time to preach with you guys. But I gotta tell you, if Paul was in this culture, I'm just guessing he would say, you know, to those who are on Facebook and Twitter, we gotta become like those who are on Facebook and Twitter to share the good news of Jesus. We've got all kinds of people groups around here that we get to share this message with if we're willing to become like them and not just assume they're gonna come like us. 1 Corinthians 9 is interesting because Paul says we become all things to all people, but the modern church has really flipped Paul's message on its head. Because many of our churches, especially the larger churches, they've learned a model of growing through becoming homogeneous groups. And if we can just target this specific group, then we can grow. And there's a sense in which that's true, but there's a sense in which that's not the full gospel. Because when Paul came to Rome, he didn't say, hey, Jews and Gentiles, why don't you set up different churches on different parts of town? He said, no, this is the diversity of the body of Christ that we get to bring together and learn how to do this together. And that's going to cause conflict, but there's going to be so much beauty that wouldn't be there otherwise. What does it look like, again, for us to learn to look like our community, to to learn to grow in new ways? We've got a long way to go, just like many churches do, but we want to do that in a way that diversifies. is isn't just target uh, target practicing like some kind of uh, business might do about this is our target dynamic. Our, Our target group we're trying to reach is people. Amen? No matter what they might look like. And what would it look like for this church to choose to give up home field advantage some of the time, Right? Because sometimes it's like, you can come here and be a part of us if you look like us and you you learn to do things like us. But what would it look like to do things a little different and say, no, we want to become all things to all people so that by all possible means we might win some. What would it look like for us to leave these four walls and learn to do church? And when I say do church, that doesn't mean necessarily a worship service with people up front talking, but to do church in the community on other people's turf. 
And all of a sudden, they don't have to cross boundaries. They may never cross otherwise, but they get to hear the good news of Jesus. And we learn from them that Jesus has been working in their community long before we ever dreamed of getting there. This is the vision of Paul that Paul gives in Philippians chapter 2, I believe. He, Paul says it all over his letters. I've, I've shown you where in Corinthians uh, and in Romans. But in Philippians 2, he has something really important he has to say that I think is so important for churches to get today. If you can flip there, I'll give you time. This is one of the most important passages, I think, in all of Scripture. But I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, can anyone say amen to these things? If any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That sounds a lot like, well, I've made myself a slave to win as many as possible, doesn't it? It's the same principle at work, just working itself out in a different context. And I think this is part of what it means to call Jesus Lord. It's not to demand our rights and our preferences and say, this is the way it must be. But to say, what is it that I can give up? How can I become a slave to others and give up my preferences so that people can learn about Jesus that might not otherwise do so. So are we willing to do this, to experiment with this, to figure out what it is, to deny our rights, to give up our preferences for people who don't yet know Jesus? As I said last week, God is turning my heart to, to love those that, I, uh, that don't know Jesus yet in new ways. And let me just clarify, you may be thinking, all this guy's going to preach about is people who are lost people, right? We, I gotta, we got series coming up, they're going to be about how we love God and how we grow in our relationship. It's about loving God, loving people, and serving others, okay? And we're going to focus on all three of those things. I'm just spilling out a little of my heart and what drew me to you and the vision of this church that has caught my attention, Okay. But, but what would it look like for us to have a heart? Because I think it would be so exciting to be a part of a church where all the time there are new people here and you ask them, how long have you been here? And, 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 and you ask their name and, and, and you don't seem to know who they are. They're new faces. And all of a sudden they're getting excited about knowing the love of Jesus and, and they're going out and, and they know people we don't know that they get to share the life-changing message that's changed them with other people. And all of a sudden they're inviting more people and, and this just becomes a place where everyone's a stranger but everyone knows we're part of joining in Christ together. And then well, we become part of connecting point groups and we get to know each other that way and we learn to ser- serve each- with each other. And that's how relationships grow maybe more than anything else. But I want to end with one, one last thought. I want you to think and just imagine, surely this is imaginary, hopefully this isn't your real life, but, but uh, just imagine with me, you've got seven credit cards in your wallet, which means you haven't taken Financial Peace University, right? Um, but you've got seven credit cards in your wallet, and all of a sudden you look in one day and you're, you're going to go to pay and you realize one of those credit cards is missing. Um, my mom the other day was actually at a restaurant. Um, I won't say which one, so you're not scared to go there. But she got her, her purse ripped off while she was there, and, and, uh, and, and her wallet was gone. And so she's having to go through this mess of trying to figure out, who do I need to call to cancel credit cards? Well, so as soon as uh, she called, she found out that somebody had already charged $1,000 at two different CVSs. And I'm going, what do you buy for that much at CVS? Uh, but they'd already used that, and you know, fortunately, uh, that was all taken care of at some point. But it's just kind of this... This feeling of loss and this obsession about where is that? But have any of you ever had that kind of loss and gone, you know what? I've got six of my seven credit cards still here. I feel good, you know? No. 
I mean, you're obsessed, and, and you're thinking about, where is that lost credit card? I can't go on without finding it, right? And, and I think it's the same way, maybe for some of us who are younger, and the same way with our cell phones, or maybe all of us with our cell phones, right? You ever lost your cell phone? You're like, I don't even know anybody's number. It's all in my cell phone. And do you ever go home and think, well, I'm so glad I know where my remote is and my you know, electronics, that I know where they are. No, you are on an obsession, on a mission to find that lost cell phone, aren't you? When I think about the gospel and what God's called us to do, I guess my question is, what does Greenville Oaks obsess over? Not, not what do we say we obsess over, not even what's on our banners and what's on our vision. What is it that we obsess over that we, we just have to be about and we can't let go of? Here's the question that's plaguing me right now, and I hope it'll bother you this week a little bit. Do we really want to spend our life managing what was lost and neglect of what's still lost? Do we really want to spend our lives just focused on the six that we still have, not thinking about the seven that could cause so much trouble? And I, I just think that's the vision that God's calling us to. And I hope your hearts are being pulled together in this. And, and like I said, we're going to focus on those who are here. This is not about, hey, you're just a part of a team to go out and do a sales mission. That's not what this is. We're all growing in our discipleship. And as we bring people in, they're going to add insights to the gospel that we don't have if you've ever been a part of Let's Start Talking or Friends Speak or reading the gospel with people who are reading it for the first time, you realize that they see things you'll never see because they have a new and fresh lens to see the gospel when it's become kind of glossed over for you. So right now I want to pray that God would do this work in us. Uh, but, but before we pray, we're going to move into a time of at the table. And, uh, and so if, if those who are serving would like to get up, this would be a good time to go back and prepare to do so. The table is just such a vital, important part of our time together. Uh, each week here at Greenville Oaks, we serve uh, a, a cracker that uh, represents the body of Christ. It's the bread that he taught us uh, to eat together. And then we take some juice, um, and, and it represents the blood of Christ. Jesus taught us to do this a long time ago. And the, and the neat thing about this is throughout the world today, we've got Christians all over the world, probably in Iraq today, who are taking bread and taking a cup. We've got Christians in Regina who are, who are doing the same thing this morning. We've got Christians all over this world. And so what you see today, this is a family. We're around a table. Well, kind of, you know, this setup's a little hard for this. But we're around a table of sorts. And Christ is our host. And, and what's cool is if you wear the title of doctor, you've gotten a doctorate, you're not doctor when you come to the table. Like, like all those things that distinguish us when we come to the table, that doesn't matter here because we don't play favorites at this table. This is the table of Christ and all are welcome. There may be one who comes up and shares some thoughts and says a prayer from time to time, but Christ is our host here. This is his church. This is his table, and he invites all to come and partake. So right now we're going to pray for the bread, pray for the cup, and then I want you to think about this time, about all those Christians around the world. Maybe you say a prayer for those who are struggling today. Maybe you're in a time of struggling, but we come and we remind ourselves that Jesus has died on our behalf, and it is good news that's changed our lives. Amen? We're free through that but we're willingly becoming slaves to those that we might win as many as possible. God, we thank you so much for this reminder, for this ritual, for this table, that every week we come together, and some weeks it may mean more than others. Sometimes it might become rote, but we don't believe that's the way it should be, that this family is together and, and, and we're together with so many across the world that are remembering today that what's most important is not what's going on in our lives. It's a reminder about what you have already done in Jesus Christ, that your future is on the way, that you want us to be people of reconciliation, that you want us to well, really do all things to reach all people so that some might come to know you. 
So this morning, God, I pray that we would remember Jesus and we remember the sacrifice, the cost that was there, but we would also remember our brothers and sisters that are all a part of this body. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.